Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Matters. I'm your host, Kara Dillard, Interim Associate Director at JMU's Madison Center for Civic Engagement and an Assistant Professor in the School of Communication Studies. The goal of Democracy Matters podcast is to speak with academics, leaders, students, and practitioners about the importance of democracy in our world. March 6th through 10th is National Civics Education Week, and on this episode of Democracy Matters, we're exploring youth civic education. And by youth, I mean kindergartners for, through fifth graders, which is not normally the age you think about when you think of civic education. And so on today's podcast, we're talking with Dr. Stacy Molnar-Main, Research Associate in Civic Education and Deliberative Pedagogy with the Kettering Foundation and a school climate consultant for the Pennsylvania Department of Education. Hey, Stacy, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, Kara. Good to talk to you. Same. So... How did you get into this particular line of work of civic education and and in deliberative pedagogy? Well, um, yeah, I guess it's been quite a quite a quite a long road. Um, I actually started my career in K twelve education in the late nineteen nineties. I was a school psychologist. Um, after beginning that role, I was confronted with the challenge of helping new teachers with classroom management. Um, And traditionally, uh, classroom management and behavioral issues with children um, are approached by implementing reward systems and other ways of exercising control over kids. Um, And what I learned quickly was that approach only works to an extent. Uh, With rewards and punishment, you may be able to convince uh, children to behave and get along when adults are looking, but what happens when adults aren't looking? Uh, Kids usually go back to trying to get their needs met in the ways that are most familiar to them. And they often replicate the controlling approaches that adults used on them. Um, So as an early career school psychologist, um, I was observing this um, and I was wondering, you know, what are we actually teaching kids uh, when we think about how we organize our classrooms and our schools and how we try to control their behavior? Um, And at that time, I was lucky to work with a group of teachers who were interested in helping kids learn how to work together, uh, learn together and problem solve together. Um, And so we decided to approach the problem of classroom management and student behavioral issues with democracy in mind. And we decided to treat elementary students as citizens of their classrooms and schools. Um, It was really a transformative early career experiment um, and it paid off because we learned that kids were able to create their own classroom rules and norms, identify when things weren't working for them or the community, um, and put those things on an agenda to begin to talk about and problem solve around. Um, And they were able to implement their own plans to improve the learning environment. Um, So this experience set me on a very different path in education, prompted me to pursue my doctorate in teaching, learning, and leadership, with a focus on research in civic learning in schools. 
Um, so now I work as a school climate consultant. I continue to do that civic ed research, um, but a big part of my work really involves recognizing the ways in which our schools um, can emulate the, ty emulate the types of communities, um, the type of democracy we'd like to have. So let me just ask, I think maybe the $64,000 question, which is at what age can children become democratic citizens or at what age can they really, can we really begin expecting them to begin exercising democratic agency? Well, I'm going to answer that question with a question right back at you, Kara. And that is when are we willing to start treating children as democratic citizens? Because when we are willing to start, that's when kids start to learn. Um, you know, how you treat a three-year-old um, as a democratic citizen may look a lot different than how you treat a 10-year-old or a 17-year-old, but children can begin to learn and practice skills that support them in acting and behaving um, with agency uh, from the time they're little. Um, and it really has to do with how we think of them, the questions that we ask of them, um, how we approach problems, um, how we frame issues that uh, involve their feelings, um, how we frame conflict. Um, there's just, you know, it really is, um, you know, a mindset in working with kids. I, I think that's a really great question. And I'm, and I'm glad that you asked that. Um, and it, it makes me reflect on, um, and I think that you do a really nice job of answering it, which is what do we mean by being a democratic citizen. And I can imagine that there's what we expect of um, democratic agency for adults or even for middle and high school students is very different than what we would expect from uh, kindergartners through fifth graders. And your work in the 2022 edition of Ketter the Kettering Foundation's journal Connections I think speaks to some of this question, and it's interesting because the your work there um, in this uh, in this journal highlights not just what teachers need to do in the classroom to create students as these kind of democratic, deliberative citizens, but also what students need to do for themselves. So, can you tell us about this research? What does it mean for K through five students to be democratic citizens? What does that look like? Well, so let me just start by talking a little bit about our research um, and and what we learned, because what we basically uncovered were what um, what we've termed the building blocks of deliberative democratic citizenship. And I think if we, you know, if I can introduce those building blocks to you, then it might be a little easier for you to begin to think about sort of what teachers and students do in this kind of relationship that's built around um, supporting the development of students as democratic citizens. <laughs> So in essence, uh, I worked with a group of elementary teachers mostly um, who were um, asking questions about, you know, how can, how do their stu students learn to be democratic citizens and what kinds of things do they do in their classroom that they feel felt moved their students toward that sort of democratic ideal, right? Um, and, you know, the ideal that they were focused on was, you know, what, what, can I do in my classroom to prepare my students to sit down when there's a contentious issue that affects them and um, not argue for their solution, but actually work with someone else to try and come up with some type of understanding of the problem and solution um, or solutions that could work for all of us. Um, maybe we have to give something up here and there, but uh, we get to a better place together. Um, so that was sort of the conception of citizenship that they were operating under. Uh, they then went back to their classrooms and they were thought very carefully about how they designed the learning environment. 
activities for kids um, on their own, um, implemented some of some new practices and came back and shared. So it was pretty open-ended. Um, and one of the very interesting things was that the teachers came back with some very similar things. Um, they talked a lot about uh, things that would build their students' communication skills, right? Their ability to like wait and listen, their ability to um, understand what other people are saying, uh, how to speak, how to express disagreement in multiple ways, um, how to ask the types of questions that will help um, move, move a group towards solving problems. So the first building block was communication skills. Um, the second building block that they identified was empathic perspective taking. That is, um, you know, they all came back and said, well, we do some things um, that help our students develop awareness of um, themselves, uh, their own feelings and feelings in others. We do things that help kids um, listen and understand that different people have different life experiences and we want to honor that so that, you know, they use a lot of literature and things in the classroom that highlight um, diverse experiences. The idea of how do I listen with my heart when I'm engaged with someone around something that may be a difficult problem for us both. Um, how do I list, look for voices or perspectives that aren't in the room? Um, these were all sort of themes that were coming up from the teachers um, and they, they felt like those were really critically important. Um, they also felt like it was important to recognize and make explicit to the kids that we're trying to create a democratic classroom community and that might be different than something else that they've experienced. So that was another building block. They wanted to create a sense in their students of belonging to a democratic classroom community. So that influenced how they organized desks, um, how they uh, approached uh, things like establishing classroom rules, um, how they uh, engage students when there was a problem and framing that under the fact that we're living together in a democracy. So how do we solve things together? Um, so those were important things. Um, the fourth building block was sense of agency. Uh, kids had to have an opportunity, they felt, um, to actually uh, uh, make choices in their classroom, be known for who they are, um, to uh, uh influence uh, the learning environment and be agents of change. Um, the communicating in ways that help students develop a growth mindset, that is the fact that we can work, continue working toward um, uh, a better, get to getting to a better place. Um, that was important uh, in under this concept of sense of agency. Um, and then finally, they actually explicitly taught, taught the skills of dis deliberative decision-making because they felt like so much is modeled for students um, that's based in the debate mindset um, that they really needed to engage students in, you know, generating multiple solutions to a problem, um, unpacking the pros and cons of various solutions, um, engaging uh, initially non-judgmentally when considering different um, ways of approaching problems, um, those were all things that they could approach with kids as early as, you know, first grade, um, creating a sense of um, playfulness around uh, identifying solutions, identifying problems, etc. So uh, how hard of a sell was this kind of new, you know, deliberative pedagogy, sort of a focus on it? 
on a democratic classroom. How hard of a sell was that to K through five teachers? What do you, as you were building up your partnerships with teachers in the classroom, what what were perhaps some of their main reservations to adopting this kind of pedagogy? What were their challenges? So you might not believe this, but there it was not a hard sell. Um, I think what I found is that most teachers go into education, or at least the teachers that I work with, <clears throat> because they want to uh, support student development. They want their students to be able to contribute to the community. Uh, they want their students to be able to um, they're, they're, they believe their students are the future, right? Um, and so really the big sell was framing what they already do with democracy in mind. Um, a lot of the things that the teachers did um, in their experimentation was an adaptation of something they were already doing. They just did it a little differently with democracy in mind. So let me just give you an example. Um, some of the teachers talked about how they arranged their classroom desks. You know, teachers intentionally place desks to support the type of classroom that they want to have, right? Maybe they're in rows and that creates a certain type of engagement in learning. Maybe they would be in groups of two or three or tabletops. That would create a certain type of engagement in learning. Um, but when the teachers started to think about that with democracy in mind, they really thought about their end goal, maybe in a second grade or third grade classroom, would, that, would be that kids could work together to solve a problem together. Now, when that first grader or second grader entered the classroom, they may not have been prepared to work in a group of six kids um, to tackle a problem, whether that's a shared you know, learning problem that has to do with a problem set that they've been given in math, or whether it's a social problem that came up at the re in recess and they wanted the kids to generate multiple solutions to this problem. Um, and, you know, when they entered the classroom, they may not have been prepared for that. So the teacher said, well, what we do is we start, we might start with a group of two students. We might pair our desks in two at the beginning of the year. And we might do a lot of partner work so that they can practice listening to each other. They can practice uh, talking about a problem or their own experiences with a problem with just two people um, and then brainstorming solutions with just two. And then over time, they would add another person or give them more complex problems for the kids to work on. So that by the end of the year, the kids were able to sit in um, small group circles with either an entire class or a segment of the class, five or six kids, to engage in this kind of work. So it was really just a reframing of what the teachers already did, but doing it with democracy in mind. Similarly, um, read-alouds are a really common activity that's, that is done in a classroom to support literacy. That's when the teacher sort of, um, it's an interactive read-aloud, they read a page or two in a book, and then they stop and ask questions. Often it has to do with what are, you know, who are the main characters, um, what's the problem? What do you think might happen next? These are all things that support students' comprehension. But when you do that with democracy in mind, what the teachers then began to start to think, oh, well, we want to develop an awareness of the self and others. So they would ask questions about how is this character feeling? Why do you think that character felt that way? How do you think the other character feels? Why do you think he or she felt that way? So they would tap into the idea of lived experience, which is an important concept in, um, in, in democracy because we live in a diverse democracy. Um, then they would start to draw attention to things like, well, what is the problem? What are some different ways of understanding this problem? Um, again, recognizing that sometimes how we name and frame problems in democracy can really vary. Um, and it's a really uh, complex skill to get kids to begin to complex and simple. You just need to start to do it. 
to get kids to start thinking about well, what are different ways of naming this problem? How do different people experience the problem? And then moving toward um, brainstorming solutions. So when teachers were engaging with a problem that inevitably comes up in text, sometimes they would stop in the middle of that and then engage the kids in activities that would get them to think with agency. If I were solving this problem, what are some things that I could do? Um, so that's just a different orientation. And like I said, it wasn't a big sell, but it did take some time to get the teachers to think about uh, positioning um, their classroom as a classroom focused on preparing citizens for democracy. One of the building blocks that you talk about, and, and sorry, I think embedded in one of those building blocks that these teachers um, really sort of developed as part of their pedagogy was this notion of encouraging disagreement. And you know all of the other, I think, sort of pedagogical practices and outcomes that you've talked about so far about listening, about um, you know trying to hear voices that are out, you know, not in the room and not you know, in this part of the conversation, I think are really helpful to build collaboration. Um, you know, but one of the things that you mentioned in this article is about in, teachers should encourage, of course, productive disagreement. So my question is, why disagreement? Why do kids at this age need to learn how to disagree productively? How vital is that particular skill to this idea of learning democratic skills and democratic agency? Well, um, disagreement is real. Um, and students know when we are being real. Um, and they know they see disagreement all around them. Um, and so democracy is real. Disagreement is real. We want to be real with our students. So that's one reason why we want to wade into where disagreement is. The other thing, though, is that um, we, we need to, we, it's important that teachers that are focused on teaching about democracy um, help to frame for young people that disagreement is about learning, right? I mean, if there is a disagreement, it means that there is a tension between ideas, a tension between values, a tension between lived experiences. There is something that is resulting in that tension or a tension between goals, um, and while our knee-jerk reaction or what we see modeled on the nightly news uh, may be to win at all costs, um, in pursuing our own perspective um, and trying to avoid disagreement or, you know, roll over the other, overpower the other person, we are missing the opportunity to learn. So in classrooms that are teaching about democracy, we often teach mistakes or opportunities to learn disagreements or opportunities to learn. And let's dig into that. What is the nature of the disagreement? Uh, what about someone's lived experience or perspective might have um, influenced uh, where they stand in this? Um, and then is there any common ground that we might share in relationship to this issue that might help us move forward together? Um, so those are, you know, if we don't, if we don't walk into the disagreement, all those important lessons are lost, right? So it's important to, to elevate that, um, teach students how to disagree productively. You know, you might give them the language in which to disagree or to express, you know, I, I agree with this about what you say, uh, but this doesn't make sense to me, or this is something that I don't agree with, um, or, or even to ask questions when you disagree. That's another important skill that the teachers would teach is, Instead of saying, I don't like what you said or I disagree, can you tell me more about that or can you tell me more about this? Um, and I, this is what I think. Um, uh, what do you think? 
as someone with a five-year-old at home, <laughs> I, I, I wish that my own child could adopt more of those kinds of skills. It would perhaps make my own parenting life a lot more easier, which is neither here nor there <laughs> for the matter of the podcast. Um, but I could see ways in which, I mean, something as simple of a skill, uh, and it's not simple, right? This idea of encouraging productive disagreement could, you know, not just transform how students are engaging in a classroom and the kinds of skills that they're learning, but that sort of, as you mentioned, that sort of real world transition in which, right, we do live in a real world. These six, seven, and eight-year-olds live in a real world in which they're going to have to encourage disagreement and encounter disagreement in their daily lives. And especially as we talk about um, you know, child psychology and the um, you know, sort of psychological capacities and capabilities of children at this age, um, you know, how important it is for them to learn that both disagreement is can be helpful um, and that we should encourage um, a productive disagreement, I, I think is, a, is a, just a fundamentally important concept here. Um, and so I, I really like... Can I, can I add something, Kara? Would you mind? Um, I, one thing I want to add, you know, if I were working with a five-year-old um, thinking about disagreement, um, I may not focus as much on the word disagreement as much as I would focus on different ways of, um, of, of different ways of thinking about something. Um, so uh, one of the things that um, some of the research that uh, Dr. Myrna Shore did, who is a developmental psychologist, who's, who's widely recognized as the um, grandmother of social emotional learning, she recently passed away, but she did some foundational research that um, involved students in uh, looking at problems and tried to identify all the different ways that a problem could be understood. Now we could say that that's a disagreement. If I see this problem as a problem of not sharing and someone else sees it um, as a problem of um, poor manners or someone else sees it as a problem of ownership or whatever, um, those might be seen as disagreements. Um, but Myrna would, it, would suggest that, you know, you could show kids a, pro a picture of a problem and you could say, What's one way of naming this problem? What's another way? What's another way? What's another way? What's another way? Uh, getting kids to, in a playful way, uh, brainstorm different ways that a problem might be named or understood by different people, depending on where you're standing or your experience with that. You can do the same thing on the, on the problem solving side of things, make it a game with kids so that it's not always about like tension and disagreement, um, but it's a it's a puzzle, and it's a it's about um, you know coming up with as many ideas as possible about how we might under, different ways that we might understand this problem. I really appreciate what you just said, which is you know, this notion of you know, don't call it disagreement, um, perhaps because that's a negative term. Um, you know, and I really like the way that you had you were sort of talked about here's a here's an issue. How can we understand this? Give me another example of how we could. I think that's really helpful. Um, and even just thinking about this, not just as a set of skills and uh, skills that we're trying to teach kindergarten through five-year-olds, but one of the things that's happening, um, you know, certainly has been, uh, uh, you know, talked about most recently in higher education is this notion that a lot of higher education students don't want to encourage or don't want to encounter disagreement. There's been a lot of op-eds op about, um, you know, sort of the lack of debate in a, in a high school classroom, the lack of engaging opinions and concepts in classroom. And, you know, some of that research has said partially that's because 
you know, students previously aren't aren't given many chances to learn about how to productively understand um, you know, the way issues are framed and how that framing could encounter a variety of different understandings about different problems and how to talk together about those things. Um, and so I, you know, what I really appreciate about your research is, um, you know, that you're starting this research and the teachers that you're working with are, are starting now um, instead of starting, you know, perhaps when it's too late and students don't have the norms of being able to agree or disagree productively or incur or encounter that disagreement so that they could see that as a way to learn and to find common ground to work through. Yeah, and I, I think an important thing related to this, Kara, is that it's, you know, we have to recognize that students, students and citizens may still have their own individual commitments um, and individual perspectives and way that they would like to see understand a problem or, or, or move forward on it. Um, but the ability to make the cognitive shift and engage with a problem in a way that helps you flesh it out um, and understanding the breadth of it um, and the range of different experiences that someone might have with that is an inver- very important skill for citizens to have. As we begin to look at the problems like you named, you know, um, you know, there, there are some real uh, tensions that are going on in our society about, you know, what, how, how we teach and what we should teach. Um, you know, there's a, there seems to be an effort to want to sort of narrow the focus um, in some places and expand it in others. Um, and fundamentally, we want our students to be able to recognize those themes. They recognize those trends um, and interrogate them. Um, uh, recognize, well, there may not only be two ways of thinking about this, right? Um, and so developing those mindsets and thinking skills as a whole different um, dimension of your humanness um, than maybe your individual commitments um, so that, that students can engage in lots of levels and lots of ways as citizens. So here in the Madison Center office, when we read your Connections article and some other pieces around this kind of deliberative pedagogy research at this age, we really wondered about how uh, these kindergarten through fifth grade students practice these skills, but also how well teachers supported them. And so, for example, and this is a this is a really simplistic example and feel free to correct my example. So. If students voted among themselves in a democratic way to extend recess, which knowing my own kindergartner seems something that's totally plausible that she would try to do, um, you know, how would teachers support such democratic advocacy? Um, you know, or do you find, or have you found that um, you? Know, and what I'm trying to get at is, we can like. ideally support this notion of teaching students democratic skills, but when it bounces, you know, when it comes up against sort of real world concepts of no, we need to learn math and science at this particular time of the day, how do teachers navigate that kind of rub? Do they support kids? How much so, so that students feel that their, you know, their democratic agency is being supported? Um, Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, And so what I would say first is that, uh, again, this takes a bit of a different mindset and sometimes it takes a little more time, okay? Um, So um, I would assume, based upon knowing the teachers that were doing this work, um, that if students voted among themselves to extend recess, um, that would be um, a opportunity for 
um, the class to explore that issue um, and look at it as an opportunity to make a decision, right? Um, the teachers would uh, likely uh, not look at recess and isolation, but look at the goal. What are we trying to accomplish? What are the goals of our classroom? We're here to learn. Um, and we're here to do X, Y, and Z, right? So we have to spend time on math. We have to spend time on English. We have to get these things done. Um, and so the question might be turned back to the students. Um, how can we get all of these things done if we are going to do more recess? You know, we're going to expect, spend more time in recess. And so that would be where the problem solving would begin. It wouldn't be just like, oh, the kids voted for recess. Um, the, the students would be engaged with the trade-offs that a teacher might have to uh, engage with uh, when deciding how to spend her classroom time or his classroom time. Um, and the kids would be examining those trade-offs and then proposing, how do we get all of this done in our school day? Um, and deliberating about some different options uh, for getting more fun time outside and getting our work done. Um, and then the teachers might go back and try one of those solutions, right? They, maybe the students decide that they're going to extend recess on Mondays and Wednesdays, but they're going to shorten it on Tuesdays and Thursdays so that they can have more time for math. Um, it's hard, can be hard to do this in the structure of a school day, um, but these are the types of things that the teachers would, would take on with kids. Real issues, real work. Um, they would be willing to uh, deliberate try a solution, and then come back and say, okay, how's it working for us? Um, and it wouldn't just be, is recess fun? Is it better? It would be, how is it working for us in the context of how we have to live and work uh, in schools and what our goals together are? Um, so it does take some more work, but it's, it can be powerful. Um, we had a group of teachers that totally revised uh, the, research, re the recess activities uh, with students' um, input um, and, and deliberation, and then came back and continued to hone uh, the classroom, or excuse me, the recess procedures uh, throughout the year. Um, and the students were really taking ownership of how they spent their time, what types of activities they were doing, and also monitoring each other, uh, you know, working together to make the recess time um, as fun and safe um, and respectful as possible. So I, I know a lot of your more recent work, Stacy, has been in the area of trauma-informed education. And I think coming out of COVID, that line of research uh, has become incredibly important and powerful. What do you see is as the intersection of this kind of K through five deliberative pedagogy that you've been talking about and its relationship to trauma-informed education. How should we understand, is there an intersection or what can the intersection or what should the intersection be? Yeah, I think that there are a number of intersections and I think it really, you know, it, it reflects, um, you know, what we're all experiencing out in our communities um, and in our democracy now. You know, we are, um, you know, we are a, a nation that's been impacted by a number of traumas. Uh, collectively, um, whether it be COVID, whether it be 9-11, whether, you know, uh, uh, the um, George Floyd, you know, our, our, the, there are, we have historic traumas uh, that we are, are all um, impacted by. And then there are individual traumas, right? Um, and the, the heart of that work um, is really about relationships, right? 
It's about how you show up every day. Um, and so I think the intersection between uh, deliberative democracy and democracy work and trauma-informed work is, um, is how we show up. It's how we enter into relationship with our neighbor. Um, it is about uh, being present um, and uh, supporting uh, educational practices that help kids to be present and show up as they are, um, honoring different lived experiences uh, within our curriculum, um, but also in our classroom, um, so that we have that foundational relationship um, from which to build a classroom community. There's an abundance of research showing that parental involvement in their children's learning is vital to um, you know, in reinforcing learning outcomes, to making sure that concepts stick, to helping you know kids learn how to read, to do math, and so on. Um, uh, in in 2023, this notion of parental involvement, and I you know as um, you know as as I think that notion is is maybe being shaped and framed in terms of parental rights has really changed and moved to the forefront a lot of discussions about the parent-teacher-student relationship. What has your, the teachers that you've worked with in doing this research, what's been the, as you've talked with them, what's been the parents' response to this notion of more democratic classrooms and creating democratic agency in their children's lives? Have parents been supportive, um, uh, not supportive? I, I'm, really, I'm really curious about how parents understand what these teachers are trying to do and, how, um, and if parents are really supportive of it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and what I recall, I mean, this was not a focus of the research, but what I do recall is that the teachers talked a lot about, about um, their work with parents and thinking about engaging with parents differently. Um, you know, when you're talking about treating students as citizens um, and engaging them as problem solvers, um, but you have, you know, your, your work with parents is very distant um, and uh, you really don't have um, a relationship with your parents uh, there seems to be, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, so the teachers, uh, after they began this work with students, uh, had sort of an aha moment and said, you know, I really need to think about um, how we're engaging with, with our parents. Um, so they were rethinking, you know, parent-teacher conferences and how they might be able to give te student, teacher, excuse me, their parents a glimpse into the types of skills that they were trying to reinforce um, that were under a democratic lens, under a democracy lens. Um, you know, in in elementary schools, they weren't taking on these big uh, divisive issues, right? They were really taking on like, how are we running our classroom? How are we solving recess problems? Um, what kind of science fair project do we want to do as a class? You know, the, the everyday decisions. Um, so it didn't rub against any of those political conflicts. Um, it really was about how we want to work and live together and solve problems together. Um, and so parents were not resistant to that. They just needed to understand it, um, and the teachers really found this was an uh, entry point in uh, to having conversations about our joint goals, our collective goals, our shared goals for our kids, because we all want students to grow up and be contributing members to society, and we all want our society, society our democracy, to be in a better place than it is right now. 
here I and I actually don't know this answer of which I'm going to edit this line out when we go through editing. But um, you know, have you have you done any follow up with your te- with the teachers that you've been working with since you originally did this research? Have they have those teachers been able to to track um, their kids um, who have gone through this kind of democratic learning process and um, have done any like kind of semi longitudinal study of it, even like anecdotally? Yeah, so we don't have like formal longitudinal studies. Um, but you know, I, I think anecdotes are sometimes uh, really powerful too. Um, and I can tell you, we had um, two teachers that were working on this with first and second grade kids, they were experimenting with trying to make their first and second grade classrooms more democratic, they were teaching kids to identify and name problems and generate lots of solutions. And, um, and you know, analyze those potential solutions and then implement and reflect. And, you know, this whole um, iterative process of becoming a democratic problem solver with others. Um, And what they found is that after their kids, when the first graders went to second grade, um, the teacher who wasn't teaching democratic skills could tell which kids were from that democratic first grade classroom. Um, and the way they describe it is the kids asked different questions, they engaged differently with their peers, um, they were more invested in the community. Um, once the kids got past that second grade classroom, um, the teachers said, you know, they didn't have any other teachers that were doing this approach. Um, and so the students started to come back to their teachers and say how much they missed, you know, the classroom meetings where they would problem solve. Um, And so those two teachers decided to start a deliberation club um, in their elementary school so that it was those students could continue to have access to that type of democratic community. And I think it met once a a week. um, And instead of focusing on um, contributing to the democratic classroom environment, it focused on the school environment. Um, And so the students would identify uh, issues in the school that they could work on. Um, and then uh, work to generate solutions and implement those. I love that. Um, I, I love the idea of a deliberation club at a elementary school. That is a fantastic idea. Um, but for for teachers who might be interested in incorporating this kind of pedagogy in their elementary level classrooms, what What's the first step? What seems to be, and I give these are two separate questions. What's what's the first step, and what seems to be the the most critical idea about a democratic and deliberative pedagogy that teachers would need to have in their minds as they begin to incorporate this in their classroom? So I think that that's a great question, um, and I haven't thought about that before. So I'm just going to speak off the cuff. Um, this kind of work fundamentally is about community, right? Um, When you're doing it in your classroom, it's about building a classroom community. It's about um, identifying issues and concerns together and trying to generate solutions to them. Um, It's not an individual act. Um, So I would say the most fundamental thing would be for a teacher to find colleagues who are interested in creating a democratic classroom or school um, to work together with. Um, Because as I said, with this group of teachers, the most important thing that they did up front was sit down together 
and begin to think about the work that they're already do, doing as being um, something that could contribute to uh, democracy, right? To democratic citizenship. Um, and they needed to do some reading and thinking and talking about the types of citizens they wanna create, the types of skills that they wanna foster. And they might wanna look at this list of um, building blocks of deliberative learning, just to give them a jump start, um, and then go back and think about, well, how can I revise or adapt what I'm already doing to build this mindset and this set of skills into my classroom? That's wonderful. And, um, you know, I would, I would love for every teacher to be able to adopt these kinds of ideas and these kinds of pedagogies in classrooms. It feels incredibly vital at this moment uh, for our democracy. Well, thank you again, Stacey, for taking time to talk with us today. I, I really appreciate it. And I think your work is uh, profound and transformative. And the work that the teachers that you have, um, that you have partnered with here are doing amazing work for developing democratic norms in kids. And it's it's encouraging to know that it's not just, uh, you know, at 18 years old that people become citizens, but really this idea that when we start treating kids like citizens, they start to think of themselves as citizens. Exactly. And I think when we start to treat our teachers like citizens, um, that matters too. Um, so shout out to all the teachers out there. Um, you have agency. Uh, you have the ability to uh, really make a profound impact on, on our democracy by the type of learning environment you create and about how you design instruction. Um, so uh, go out and do it um, and know that you are appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you again, Stacy, for taking time to talk with us. Thank you, Kara. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Leah Suravel, Democracy Fellow for Communications in the Madison Center for Civic Engagement. Randy Budnikis, JMU Director of Digital Marketing, provides syndication for the program. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can connect and engage with us online at JMU Civic on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University at jmu.edu civic. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.